All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Walter. I want to welcome you guys here at Holmes Avenue. I'm grateful you guys are worshiping with us this morning, and uh, we hope that God is already moving in your lives today. Uh, we are going to continue our sermon series on the book of James today, and we're going to be looking specifically at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Uh, we're going to be looking really at the goodness of God here, and uh, just for me personally, as I've been living life over the last few weeks, uh, one of the things that uh, I've been wrestling with is uh, just this weight of things that are going on in the world. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of the things that are happening in terms of uh, the racial tensions within our world, not to mention the health crisis with COVID-19, uh, the concern about the economy and the stock market and how things are going there. Uh, those are big picture things that I think we're all experiencing, but even more than that, over the last few weeks that I've just had to deal with personal uh, tensions and concerns. Now, fortunately, by God's grace, my family and I have experienced no real uh, difficulty in this time, but I've just had story after story of people that are close to me, people that I care about, come to me with things like miscarriages, come to me with losing their family members, that I was just back home this week for a close family friend that lost his mother. And these things, as I've been living over the last few weeks, have begun to weigh upon me. And perhaps you're in the same boat. In addition to the things that we all are sharing with the health crisis and everything else that's going on, I know that you're probably carrying some personal weight as well. Maybe you're concerned about your financial future. Maybe you've lost a job or you're underemployed. Maybe you're concerned about your health. Maybe you too have experienced personal loss, or maybe you are just wrestling with loss that those that you love and care for are experiencing. That I think right now, one of the things that I've been seeking over the last few weeks, and maybe you can empathize with this, is I truly want to see the goodness of God. That I've had to continually remind myself that God is good, that He is faithful, that He is working in this world, because it's been hard to see over the last few weeks, even a few months, if I can be honest with you. Now, maybe you're in that same boat and you're asking the same question. Well, Walter, where, where is the goodness of God in the midst of this time? Where can I find it? How can I see His goodness be on display during this time period? Well, today I think that we're going to see James try to answer that for us. Uh, as James is writing here in these verses, he's really going to address where the goodness of God pops up in our lives. And he's going to do so in a few different areas. He's going to talk through uh, how we see God work. And he's really continuing what he began previously in chapter 1, talking through how we can experience joy in the midst of these times. With that in mind, I want to pray for us as we get started. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for today and for the mercy you've shown us. Lord, we pray that as we look at these scriptures that you would clearly display the goodness that you have for us. That we could see these words, that we could read these words that you have written for us. And we pray that you bless us. That these words will show us exactly what you're doing in this world, what you're doing in our lives. That we too can experience the goodness of God as it is found in these verses. Father, we are grateful for the things that you're doing in our lives personally. And we pray that you continue to work in our world, that none of us are surprised by the fact that we need more of your presence in this world. And we pray that you would pour some out upon us, even in this time. Let us feel more of your presence. Let us encounter you in this time. Lord, we're grateful for you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So as we begin here, I'll read the text with you. This is typically when we would uh, stand and read our text. And uh, if you would, uh, would you look to James chapter 1, verse 12 with me? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of God that we have before us. So as we read this, I know that perhaps intuitively you don't see where the goodness of God is going to come into play. As we look at this, I want to challenge us that we're going to see the goodness of God on display in this passage in three different ways. First and foremost, we're going to see the goodness of God in His gift of testing. Look again with me at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, as we begin here in this verse, we see that James references this blessing for a man who remains steadfast. He, we're we're going to see the, the blessing itself be addressed in just a few moments, but I want to take a, a second just focus in on the word steadfast. You see, this word steadfastness can be translated as steadfast or endurance. That ultimately what it means for us is that we've held on like a tree in the midst of the storm. Like the tree, we're anchored deeply within something. You see, a tree spreads its root system down through the soil. And if it doesn't get deep into the soil, what's going to happen when a storm comes? It topples over. For us, we are to be anchored in the Word of God, just like this tree. And when we are anchored deeply in the Word of God, we are able to produce steadfastness and endurance. That when these times of trials come, when these times of difficulty come, we are able to be steadfast. We're able to endure through them because we're anchored in something. You see, as we look at this passage, and really it's the entire first chapter, the guiding principle, the entire first chapter of the book of James is right understanding of wisdom. The right understanding of wisdom. We see earlier in chapter 1 that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That that's a direct promise from God. He is saying, if you need wisdom, I'll give it to you in abundance. So we see clearly wisdom is given to those who ask of it. Those who receive it and use it wisely, however, they will remain steadfast in the Lord. That when you receive this wisdom, and that's the key of this right understanding of wisdom, because if you have gained this wisdom and then apply it properly, that's when you have a right understanding. Perhaps you've uh, been someone who's helped your dad in various repairs around the house. Uh, when you were younger, the only thing you were qualified to do was to hold the light up here, right? For most of us, uh, that's where we perhaps stopped in our skills. But uh, even that, I probably, if you ask my dad, he would say, I couldn't have done that one right. But as we look at this, this idea of how to apply and understand something, you begin by holding that light and watching 
your father do this, right? Over time, he says, give me this tool. And you've identified what tool from past experience. Other times, he'll say, here, hold this part for me. And then you're in there working with him. And then finally, one day, perhaps you've learned enough, you can now do this task on your own while your father holds the light and makes fun of you. If you haven't experienced that yet, I promise you will. And it's a great day when your parents make fun of you. That in this growing and understanding, you didn't truly understand what you were doing until you could do it yourself. In the same vein, this wisdom that God has provided us, this right understanding, we don't know how to properly use it until we can use it. We don't properly know how to apply it until we can apply it. That the way we're going to remain steadfast is by applying our wisdom in a proper manner. Now, this is why James would tell us that the man who remains steadfast is blessed. Because he has received wisdom from the Lord, but he also knows how to use that wisdom that has been given to him. Yes, there is a reward coming that is clear in the passage. But the man who is steadfast knows that they can wait upon the promises of God in the midst of these times, knowing of his assurance of the life to come beyond death. That a part of this wisdom is recognizing that there is something that is beyond this life. That that gives us the ability to then know this thing that seems to be important perhaps is not that important. This thing that seems to be a real crisis for us right now perhaps isn't as crucial as we thought it was. You see, this concept of steadfastness that James is describing here is not rooted in us necessarily, but it's ultimately rooted in God. You see, we are not strong on our own, but the one that we have faith in is indeed strong. I want you to hear that, and I want you to focus in on this. The, we are not strong in and of ourselves, but the one that we have faith in is strong. You see, we will persevere through these trials because it is the one that we have faith in that will carry us through. Now, why do we have this assurance that we're going to persevere? Why do we know that we are going to get through to the end? Because God has promised that he will do so. Look at the second half of the verse with me. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Why do we know we're going to persevere? Because God has promised eternal life to those who love him. Because God has promised this eternal life to us. This is the blessing that James is referencing. The, the, this crown of life he mentions. It, you know, scholars debate over what this means. There's lots of different ways that you can interpret this. But the most common understanding is that this is to resemble the laurel wreath that is given to winners in athletic competitions, including the Olympics. Now, you, you've seen this imagery, you've seen perhaps ancient Romans or Greeks with those wreaths on their head. This is something that you would typically wear in festive moments, that you would get from celebration of something. This is essentially, for our context, the ancient version of a medal ceremony, right? Like you're on the podium, you've got a medal, things are great. Yeah, in and of that, that moment itself, the medal is not the goal. Completing and succeeding is the goal. The medal is a result of succeeding. This crown that we will receive, this crown of life, is a mark of finishing. It's a badge of honor. It shows that we have finished, but it is not the end goal to get this crown. You see, the real reward, the real goal is the prize that we strive for. Eternal life. You see, when we finish this life, we have this firm promise. 
We have this firm promise that we have not labored in vain. We have this firm promise that we have not strived in futility. We have this firm promise that we are not hopeless. You see, none of those are true because we endure purposely with the goal of everlasting life with God in our sight. John Piper once remarked that God is the gospel. And what he meant by that is that the goal isn't just to receive salvation, but the goal is that when you believe in the things of Christ, you not only are redeemed and brought into the family, but you get God. That when this life is over, you will pass into the next life that has eternal life with God. And you'll spend eternity dwelling in the new heavens and new earth with God. That you will be inside of Him. That that is the truth and beauty of the gospel. That is the goal in our life as believers. We are striving to see God the Father in the next life. Because of this, we endure because He's promised us we will be able to endure. That He's assured us that we are able to endure. We endure because He said there's value in endurance. Right? You see, the gift of this testing, which I would submit to you, doesn't just refer to a single moment of difficulty in your life, but rather the entire life as a believer, is that we are reminded of the promises of God. You see, when you and I get in difficult situations, this gift that we have in this moment of testing and trial is that we are able to remind ourselves more fully of the gifts that God has given us. That we look to the future that we are assured of and we go, times are tough now. Times have been tough for several months or several years. But you know, one day this toughness, this difficulty, this struggle will end. And one day, because of the promises of God, I will endure through to this end and I will dwell in the new heavens and new earth with him. That one day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to end sin and death. He's going to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. And I will dwell in the city of God in his presence with all generations of believers from all time. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue will dwell in the light of the Lord. That is the gift we have when we're in trial. That we can remind ourselves of that. That though this time is hard... Better days are coming. Though this moment is difficult, difficulty will end. Though I am in despair and sorrow, one day my tears will be wiped away. In the midst of these difficult times, I think this is a reminder that we need. That one day these times will be gone. COVID-19 will be just a a memory and a really long chapter in a history book for us. That the economy will recover. Things will get better. Yet in the midst of that, in the good times and the bad, we must remember that eternal goal that we are going to go dwell with God the Father. We must remember that we are assured of seeing God one day because of His steadfast love for us. That those are the things that come to mind in times of difficulty. That we are reminded of these truths. And in being reminded of those truths, that is where we are able to find the goodness of God in the midst of this testing. 
that to be fair, it makes you think of your tests, your difficulties, your trials in a different light, right? Well, James wants us to continue to think of them a bit differently because he continues on in the next verses and really challenges our perspective of what trials are supposed to do. Look with me at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. When he tempts, he himself tempts no one. Now, here in this section, we're going to see the goodness of God being displayed in the midst of temptation. And I know you might be thinking with me, how is the goodness of God on display in temptation, right? Like, isn't temptation a bad thing? Well, in and of itself, perhaps not. I would submit to you that here in verse 13, we are actually seeing one of the most crucial elements of the Christian faith. That what James is describing here is going to be one of the key concepts we have to understand as believers. Look with me at this verse. He articulates a key truth for believers here. He tells us here in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. He's telling us that trials and tests are going to come. In fact, they might even be sent or allowed by God before us. Yet, while God may test or even try to prove His people in order to strengthen their faith, He's never going to seek to induce us to sin or even destroy our faith. Now, as we look at that, you might say, well, Walter, you've said that this is perhaps the most crucial element of the Christian faith. This is one that you've got to understand. I would submit to you that this one is the most crucial element of the Christian faith because it gets right into the heart, the very nature of sin. Because if we are to live this life as followers of God, we must have a very realistic, very full understanding of sin. It is by understanding the capabilities of our own ability to sin that we more fully embrace and celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of God. The greater our sin, the greater our need for a Savior. And I can assure you that you and I, we have great sins that we need forgiveness for. Now, what is sin? Right? Like, as we hear this, you're probably thinking, we need, maybe we need a definition, right? Sin is something that is born out of our thoughts and actions. Sin is something that is born right out of our thoughts and actions. I would argue that a good definition of sin is doing something that God has forbidden or not doing something that God has commanded. I want you to get this. This isn't on the screen, but I want you to hear this. You'll get my notes later if you want them, but I want you to hear this definition. Sin is doing something that God has forbidden or not doing something that God has commanded. Those are important to understand because I think that we as Christians tend to say, I'm going to stay away from the things that God has said stay away from, right? That that's how I'm going to stay away from sin. Yet we're also disobedient by not doing the things that God has said to be near to. He has commanded us to do. Both sides of the coin lead us into sin. There's a narrow road we walk. That probably sounds familiar if you're a student of the Bible. There's a narrow path we walk to follow God. Now, here in the midst of our trials of life, we may very well be tempted to sin. That in the midst of these trials, we will encounter opportunities to sin. And the reality is that this temptation to sin does not come from the outside, but it comes from the inside. No, the devil didn't make you do it. He wasn't upset that you did it, but he didn't make you do it. No, there's not an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other chattering in your ear and trying to get you to do something. 
There's only you and I wrestling with our sinful hearts and choices. That there may be outside forces that are playing into this, that are putting things in front of us, but you and I don't need any push to go towards sin. We are more than capable of finding it on our own. Now, as we have this idea of sin in our mind, James really gives us two comments on the character of God as we start to think about temptation and sin. The first is that God cannot be tempted with evil. It's literally a quotation from the verse 13. This is the same God who does not want his people to stumble. In fact, he gives us strength to endure temptation. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor can he be tempted to do evil. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a weighty verse right there. We see that God wants us to endure through temptation that our sinful heart may provide in the midst of our trials. That God doesn't want us to sin. Now, this leads us to James' second comment on God's character. He says that God himself tempts no one. And we have to be very clear here that while we might be in the midst of trials, God will not test us with an evil intent. He's not trying to run us into sin. That the things that he is doing by allowing trials to come before us is, yes, testing our faith. Is, yes, challenging us. But these things that are put in front of us are not intended to lead us into sin. He will allow temptation to be present and test us. Yet, look back at 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That when these temptations come up in the midst of your trials, you have the ability to turn away from these things, to lean upon the strength and the power, the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you, and reject that sin. To turn away from that temptation and to look towards the goodness of God. You see, he provides a way out for us to bear up under the pressures to cave into sin. That it's a clear truth we see here in the scriptures that God is good and he is faithful. God is good and he is faithful. That when we sin, when we encounter temptation in the midst of our trials, we're wrestling not with God or outside forces, but we're wrestling with our imperfect sinful hearts. That it's important to understand that when God redeems us, when he brings us into his family, we are saved. We are then justified. Our, 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 we've been given God's righteousness. We are now a part of the family of God. But we are not perfect. That's that process of sanctification that we've talked about many times. Of growing to become more like Christ through our walks. You see, that process of sanctification means we are not perfect today. We were not perfect when we were saved. We won't be perfect next week or next year or next month. But one day in the new heavens and the new earth, when we have passed into the next life, when God has called us home, there'll be perfection in His presence. That we are striving 
to become more like Christ each and every day. Ultimately, where that leaves us is that when we sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Yet God is rich in mercy and forgiveness for us. There is no sin too big for God to forgive. And I want to be very clear on that. I would submit to you that the only sin that you cannot be forgiven of is the sin of actually rejecting the gospel and turning away from the things of God. No, there is no redemption there because to be redeemed, you must trust in God as your Savior. But I would submit to you that every sin under the sun can be forgiven by God. And I know that's an uncomfortable truth to perhaps hear and to think about the things that we can do as people. That's not to give us license to sin. But I hope that it illustrates the reality that God is capable of providing mercy to each and every one of us wherever we are. That we are capable of being redeemed by God working in our lives and changing our hearts, souls, and minds. Now here in the next few verses, James continues to talk about uh, sin and temptation. And, and he's really given us a crash course in personal spiritual warfare. How do we develop and grow in our own faith? Look with me at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. You see James here continues to comment upon the true source of temptation ourselves that he indicates very clearly that we are caught by our own desires that these are things that come out of our own heart or that we are pursuing this idea of desire if we can give a proper context of what james is talking about is referring to any intense longing for an improper object that is anything that gets in the way of our pursuit of god and yes, that means we can take good things that have been given to us by God and use those to get off track from pursuing Him. That means we can take things that God has given us that are good and chase them into sin. That doesn't make God evil. That doesn't mean that He has pushed us into it. But that means that we are capable of any width and breadth of depravity. Now, James gives us a, a real crash course into the human heart here because we need to focus in on this concept of our own desires. You see, each of us faces particular sin issues. That you and I are not the same person. Thank God for that, that we are not the same person because you're probably a lot better than I am. But here's the reality of it. The temptations we face are tailored to us as individuals because they're born out of our own hearts. What you may view as intense temptation, I may not even feel a pull towards it, and vice versa. That for each one of us, we are waging a personal and intimately personal battle on sin in our own lives. And I assure you that though you may say, I don't have a problem about that, I don't worry about that sin because I have no desires for it, you've got problems with something else. You've got something that you have a proclivity towards. This is for free. You can just think about this. But that gives us no reason to condemn people for their sin, right? If they are tempted by something because of their own heart desires, that is something they have to wrestle with. 
You can't condemn someone and say, what kind of follower of Christ are you because you struggle with that? doesn't mean we don't call out sin. It doesn't mean we don't lovingly, graciously pull people away from sin. But it changes the tenor and the tone of our conversations about sin, doesn't it? That when you and I are guilty of sin, you and I are, are tempted by different sins. That changes how we talk about things. That changes how we have conversations. That changes the, perhaps the mercy and the grace that we show one another. Now this concept of our own desires, this is best expressed by the words lured and enticed. That if you're like me, it really makes me think of hunting and fishing right off the bat, right? That it sounds like something is out to get you and let me assure you, it is. It is. Your own sinful heart will chase you into the grave if it, if it could. This idea of luring, enticing, it really paints this picture for me of something that looks good to draw in a fish or a deer, right? If you've gone fishing, you've put this lure in, you've got it in the water, and its goal is to bounce around in the water and look pretty. So that fish comes up and tries to get it. Why? Because it's going to get caught by a hook, and you're going to pull it right out. The same way as setting up a corn pile, right? If you've ever hunted, you've hunted deer maybe, you've set up a corn pile and you've been up in your stand. You're saying, come on and eat, boys. And that deer is going to come up and eat. And what's going to happen? He's going to get caught. As we're wrestling with our internal sin, we see how easy it is to walk down this path of temptation. These things that may be good are okay for us, are used to lure us into our doom. James even continues and describes this, this idea of sin being birthed in our lives as he would a child being born, right? That he says this desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. There's a process here that we must feel this desire and then chase after it, and when we give in, death occurs. I read a quote from the Venerable Beattie that suggested there are three stages in temptation. This isn't necessarily a, a biblical concept, but I think there's direct applications here. He says the first is suggestion, the second is experiment, the third is consent. And, and what that concept means, it tracks along with what James is putting out here, is that first we're tempted, we have a desire. That would be great, that would be good. It's not that bad. Whatever it is, right? And then the second is the experiment. I want to try it. I want to see it. I want to think about it. I want, to, I want to rent it for a weekend and let's just sit with it, right? Let's see if I have buyer's remorse. And the third is consent. That full bone giving birth, bringing forth death. You see, once we reach the consent stage, we've been carried away by sin willingly, leaving the path of righteousness. We've chased this desire down to its end, which is death. You see, James is not just thinking about the major crises or the blatant temptations that assault us on a day-to-day -day basis, but he's also looking at the countless little decisions we make on a daily basis. The little things that over a lifetime mold us and shape us into the people we ultimately become. That each and every day there are things that we struggle with, we wrestle with, that lead us towards Christ or away from Christ. 
hundreds of decisions each day that have a colossal, massive impact upon our eternal destinies. Now, I know the realities of sin that we've been presenting here are very bleak, that I'm not going to belittle the point that this is certainly one of those things that you're hearing this and you're doing some introspective thinking. You're thinking, well, self, I don't know what you call yourself. I'm, I'm giving you something to use as an inner monologue. Self, where exactly is the goodness of God in the midst of this temptation, right? Like I've heard a lot of things about my own sinful heart, but where is his goodness? Well, there are two things that I think you need to recall as we're wrestling with the goodness of God in the midst of temptation. The first is that God provides us a way to escape temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is an anchor verse for us when we wrestle with our sin. That this is our hope that there is escape from temptation. If only we use the wisdom that God has given us to escape. That you can even see how sin is described, how it goes from desire to being conceived to bring forth the sin. And then when fully grown brings forth death, there is a process here that we can reject at any time. We can opt out. We can say, no, I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm not going to pursue that. That there is hope in the midst of this. That the Spirit of God dwells inside us. The very power that raised Christ from the grave lives in you and I. That same power dwells in us. Let me assure you that if it's powerful enough to raise Christ from the dead after three days in a tomb, it's powerful enough to keep you from doing these things you desire. If only you're willing to embrace it and pursue that escape. The second thing that we must recall, that we must keep in mind, is that God forgives us of our sin. God forgives us of our sin. The fundamental truth of human existence is that none of us are perfect. That as we look at the account of the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, what do we see? Sinful people. God created it, perfect and right, and then we broke it. And then one day God fixes it and makes it perfect and right again. As you've looked at the world, you've probably figured it out pretty early on that the world is a difficult, broken place. That maybe you're still optimistic and you think, well, people are basically good. Well, in this day and age, in a fortunate reality, as connected as we are, you can cut the news on for a few minutes and you'll learn quickly enough that we are not a perfect people. That we don't live in a utopia. We don't live in a world where things are sunshine and rainbows and puppy dogs. The reality is that we're imperfect people who are going to fall short of the glory of God. We are all going to sin and fail at times. But God, being rich in mercy, while we are still dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's John three sixteen. You see, these words were written thousands of years ago for you and I. That they have just as much truth and meaning today as they did thousands of years ago. 
These words were written to a broken, sinful people in need of a Savior. And let me assure you, as you've been watching the news the last few weeks, we are still a broken, sinful people in need of a Savior. You see, our sins haven't gotten any worse. We have just become more aware of our capacity of sin. And we are most certainly a people in need of forgiveness from God. And it is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that He has provided forgiveness for us. It is through Jesus coming to this earth, living a perfect life, the life that you and I couldn't, that we cannot, that He walked this earth as a perfect man, fully God and fully man, tempted in every way as we have been, but yet He never sinned who went to the cross an innocent man, found innocent by every party that interviewed him, and bore the weight of our sin and shame upon that cross, who died and went to the grave, carrying our sin and shame with him, and whom three days later, when he rose again, he left that grave. But just like his burial shroud, our sin and shame was left in that tomb. That when we receive the forgiveness of God by trusting in Him through the finished work of Christ, we receive forgiveness. And the point of wrestling with this idea of sin is not for you to feel the burden of being perfect. No, because you cannot be perfect. There is nothing you're going to do to earn your salvation or make yourself righteous. Rather, it's for you to feel the burden of clinging to a perfect God. And I want to assure you that that is no burden at all. That you get to cling to God and know that it is by His work you are made righteous. You get to cling to God and know that you are an imperfect, sinful person. But He has forgiven you. Not only that, but when you're now confronted with sin and temptation, you can actively reject that and pursue God. That it's almost as if this every good and perfect thing comes from God. Well, James actually articulates that for us. He believes that truth. And ultimately, I would submit to you that we see the goodness of God in everything good. Look with me at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now James is here to answer this question for us, right? If God didn't send these temptations, if God didn't put these things in front of us, then what does He give His people? We've already talked about some of these things, the Spirit of God dwelling upon us. We've talked about forgiveness of our sins. But James would have us see that everything good comes from God, who is sovereign and in control over all. Some commentators would suggest that this everything good, every good and perfect gift is coming from God, is referring to wisdom or maybe even the Holy Spirit. We don't really have clarity on that, but regardless of what it's referring to, If it's one of those things or something else, we see that all good things come from God. This is why James tells us, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
But he's saying all good things come from God. This hasn't come from your sinful desires. This hasn't come from man or anything else. No, if it is good and right, it has come from the Lord on high. This God who set the stars in the sky, who orders how our planets orbit, how the stars spin and what rate they birth and die. He is the one who has given you everything good. He is the one who has given you everything. You see, it's a firm reminder that though the stars are always in motion, God is never changing His character or in His dealings with His people. It's why we can sing song like, all, songs like the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. We can sing those words with confidence because we know they are true. That in fact, even before I was born, God was good to me. That before the foundations of the heaven and earth, God knew that I would be born. And in His kindness and mercy, for no reason of my own, for nothing that I could have ever have done, He said, I want Him. For no reason, nothing that I have done, I assure you, is a reason for God to say, He should be a part of my family. Yet God, in His kindness and mercy, said, He will be mine. It's what we see in verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creature. You see, as God is working in this world, He is providing salvation for those that are far from Him. That you and I were once lost. That we were far from God. But that's not the way that we were intended to walk. We've already referenced Genesis, but God created the heavens and earth for us to live in perfect relationship with Him. That He created it so that we could not, we would not experience the sin and shame of this world. We could be open and understood that God would love us and there would be no barriers in between that. But we see Adam and Eve sin. We see that as sin enters in a world, it changes things. We bear the weight of that sin and shame. That even today, you and I have sinned. That we have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet this is not the way that it was supposed to be. God in His kindness and mercy sent a Redeemer, sent a way, sent someone to change these things. And His name is Jesus. That as I've said, He came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't. That He went to the cross an innocent man. He died the death that you and I deserve so that we may have life in God. That's why we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Because He has power over life and death. That's why we celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ coming to seek and save the lost. Because we were once lost, but now we are found. And that is what is available for you today. That maybe you're lost. And maybe you're saying, I don't feel this goodness of God. I don't know that I've seen it in this world. You see it here today. You see that in the midst of brokenness and your fatigue of dealing with the things of this world, that they're still good. And it comes from God. And so today, what my 
encouragement, my, my offer to you is this. I don't know that I can change the things you're wrestling with. I don't know that I can change your situation. I don't know really what I can do for you beyond this. Beyond assuring you that I once was in your same shoes. That I once wondered, is there anything more to life than this? And I found the answer to that question in the finished work of Christ. I found the answer to that question in trusting in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and walking with Him. And I can assure you, you might question why I changed. You might not trust my reasons for changing. But I assure you, it is by His work that I have changed. And that's what's available for you. And so here in the next few minutes, I'm going to pray for us. And today's prayer is going to be a little bit different, as I'll tell you. And then our band's going to come back up and lead us in a time of worship. If at any time during this, this moment of prayer or while the band is leading us in worship, you've got questions, you can see homesavenue.com forward slash contact on our screen. There's a form there you can fill out letting us know that you need prayer or someone to talk to. We're on Facebook Live this morning. We're watching this with you. Please comment on the chat. Send us a message. We want to hear what God is doing in your life. We want to walk with you through this. Now, as we pray, I do want to take a few moments to pray specifically for some things in our world. That it's no secret that over the last few weeks that we have found a greater awareness of some racial tensions and injustice in our world. And I want to spend a few minutes of our time closing praying for this. We'll conclude by praying for our own hearts as well and for God to move in this time. But I want to very specifically pray for this moment. Pray for this moment that God has provided for us to address some of these concerns in our world. So if you would, I'm going to give us a few moments in quiet prayer. And then I'll pray for us and close us out. So if you would, would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are grateful for you. We know that you are good and you are working in this world. And in the light of the last few weeks, we've seen many things happen in our country. That one of the fundamental truths that we've encountered is that there are people who are guilty of this sin of racism in our country and in our world. That there are people who look upon human beings made in the image of God and say, you have less value than I. And Father, we call that as clearly as we can a sin. And we pray for anyone, anyone who bears the weight of that sin. Anyone who has rejected someone because of how they look, of where they're from, what people group they belong to. We pray that repentance would occur. We pray that hearts would change. We pray that for our own lives and for those around us. Father, we also pray for those that have been victims of this sin. We pray for forgiveness. 
that they could indeed forgive others who have committed the sin towards them, just as you have provided forgiveness for sins. We pray for a soft heart, that this would not cause them to be calloused and cold to the world, but they could still embrace and trust in your goodness. And Father, we pray for restoration. That you could bring those together who have been guilty of this sin and those who have been victims of this sin and reconcile them together through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our country in the midst of this difficult time. We pray not for a geographic boundary, but for people. That we will be bold in calling out sin where sin is. We will be bold about killing sin in our own lives. We will be bold about calling out injustice where injustice is found. That we will be faithful to pursue the mission of God in this world. Because let me assure you, everyone who is listening, it is only by the gospel of Christ changing every man, woman, and child that it encounters that we will see cultures change, that we will see communities change, that we can see our world change. So Father, what we pray for is a move of the gospel. What we pray for is an awakening in our nation that people's hearts and minds would be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we believe firmly that the answer to the problems that ail our world will always be resolved by the good news that you have come to seek and save the lost. And it is with that confidence we pray for ourselves. That for anyone who is listening who is far from you, Lord, pray that the gospel takes root. They trust in you and pursue you for the rest of their days. For those of us whom you have already saved and brought into the family of God, I pray for your continual kindness and mercy upon us. Let us repent of our sins. Let us celebrate your great name. And let us rejoice that we have eternal life assured with you. Father, for all of us in this time, as we continue our time of worship, may you bless us. Let us sing clearly of the truth of the gospel. May we rejoice in the finished work of Christ. Father, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you guys stand and worship with us?